Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. You found us. This is indeed The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. We've got a great show for you tonight. First of all, hey, welcome to summer. Uh, my boys uh, received a tent, a four- or five-man tent, folding tent for Christmas a few years ago from their uncle. And so the last two nights, we camped out in the backyard up in Thornhill. And uh, I, I don't know where what it's like where you are, but up here in these here parts, it's been pretty cool at night. And this is one of those tents where the sides are just mesh, just like two screen doors, and they allow the breeze to flow through. It, it breathes really nicely, but it, it's cool. So I, anyway, I piled the pillows and the blankets and the comforters in there and a, and a computer. And the boys ate popcorn and ice cream and watched uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy over the course of two evenings. And there I, there I was sleeping on unpopped popcorn kernels. I felt, what was that fairy tale, the, uh, the princess and the pea or something, where she could feel the pea under the mattress? It's amazing how one popcorn kernel can cause so much irritation. Uh, anyway, I woke uh, yesterday morning and this morning feeling each and every one of my 50 years uh, took some Tylenol. I'm just not cut out for camping anymore. It's that cold, hard ground. Got to get me an air mattress or one that doesn't leak anyway. And of course, within minutes of, uh, of the boys falling asleep, I have a foot in my face or an elbow in my ribs. Of course, they slept like babes. I slept like a baby too. I cried all night and then I wet the bed. No, I did not. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the boys loved every minute of it and uh, uh, truth be told, I loved every minute of it too. Summer's also a great time to catch up on uh, reading and July usually sees a, a spate of uh, great books in this field in which I toil. Conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, ETs, lost civilizations... Uh, in fact, for you lovers of ancient history and unsolved mysteries of centuries past, New Page Books has just released Lost Secrets of the Gods, the latest evidence and revelations on ancient astronauts, precursor cultures, and secret societies. It's an anthology, and it features original essays by the likes of Jim Mars, Nick Redfern, Thomas Brophy, and my guest tonight, who's contributed an essay where he weighs in on one of my favorite topics, the Great Giant Conspiracy. The Great Giant Conspiracy posits that a number of archaeological digs across North America and elsewhere in the world have uncovered the skeletal remains of hundreds of, well, giants, humanoids, entire tribes of them, seven, eight, nine feet tall, even taller, the discoveries of these giant skeletons, the theory goes, were suppressed primarily by institutions like the Smithsonian. Now, a couple of months ago, I had Richard Dewhurst on the program. He's the author of The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America. It's a well-written and meticulously researched book, and in the end, I think Dewhurst makes a pretty damn compelling argument that there were upon this earth various races of these giants. The Bible, of course, is replete with tales of giants, but so too are newspaper accounts, like the New York Times. If you go back a century and dig deep into the archives, you'll discover that the newspaper was reporting on just such discoveries. Tonight, 
we're going to revisit the topic of big buried secrets, giant skeletons, and the Smithsonian. In fact, that's the title of, uh, of an essay written by my guest, Micah Hanks. And Micah has been on this program several times before. He's a writer, researcher, lecturer, radio personality, whose work addresses a variety of areas, including history, politics, scientific theories, and unexplained phenomena. Open-minded but skeptical in his approach, his research has examined a broad variety of subjects over the years, incorporating interest in cultural studies, natural science, and scientific anomalies, and the prospects of our technological future as a species as influenced by science. He's the author of several books, including his 2012 New Page book release, The UFO Singularity, as well as Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds, and Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past. Hanks is an executive editor of Intrepid Magazine and consulting editor-contributor for Fate Magazine and the Journal of Anomalous Sciences. He also writes for a variety of other publications, including UFO Magazine, Mysterious Universe, and New Dawn. Hanks has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs, including this program, Coast to Coast, of course, Whitley Strieber's Dreamland, National Geographic's Paranatural, the History Channel's Guts and Bolts, CNN Radio, and many others. He also has a weekly podcast that follows his research and is available at his popular website, GralianReport.com. Let me just crib from his essay, Big Buried Secrets, Giant Skeletons, and the Smithsonian. The debate over whether the Smithsonian has hidden evidence of giants in American prehistory continues to be torn apart by proponents from both believer and skeptic camps. Yet sadly, there is a question underlying the debate that is far bigger than even the largest giant skeleton. The question has long been asked, have giant skeletons been discovered throughout the Americas, and if so, is the Smithsonian Institute in Washington actively seeking to cover up those discoveries? Micah Hanks, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Always good to be on with you, brother. Great to have you. Well, um, have you read uh, Dewhurst's book? You know, yeah, I actually had a copy of that. And, uh, you know, as, as uh, colleagues in this field often do, I actually uh, was on a ancient alien cruise earlier this year, and uh, my good friend Hugh Newman was one of the fellow speakers on that cruise with me, and I passed my copy along to him. Uh, so we, we kind of spread the, uh, the the good word in this field. And uh, But, yeah, I'm certainly familiar with Richard's book, absolutely. Well, before we weigh in on whether or not the Smithsonian is engaged in some uh, plot to suppress this information, let me get your take on the existence of giants. We certainly don't see them being exhibited in museums these days, but as I mentioned, uh, there are a lot of newspaper reports here in the United States, the New York Times and others, uh, that that uh, document these alleged archaeological discoveries. What do you make of those? Well, you know, it's a contentious issue, and we have to be careful in phrasing it. Again, you know, I, I primarily try to approach things from a skeptical perspective. Uh, Persuasion, but but I'm not the kind of person, as you know, from me being on you know, previous appearances on your program as well as others, that you know I'm not the kind of person who is a debunker. And I have had a lot of people who are what I would call pathological debunkers, who have come after me for even talking about this discussion. Now listen, here's my and this is just applying just very basic logic to the situation. If I'm walking down the street and I see a seven or an eight foot tall individual coming toward me, I'm going to think that's an extremely tall person. If I see a nine or a ten foot tall person, I'm going to think that might be giant by our standards. In fact, the seven or the eight foot tall person might qualify. Now, there are people who exist on Earth today 
and several of them, especially among NBA basketball players, you know, who are uh, sometimes in excess of seven feet tall. Right. But the thing is, is that when we look at these reports of supposed giant skeletons, the interest, the interesting thing to me is that there are cases where there are, at least in one instance, um, in West Virginia, some you know, 17 skeletons that exceeded seven feet in height were taken from a single mound. Um, statistically, this is very interesting, and there was a great article by Dr. Greg Little recently that appeared online at apmagazine.com who uh, had talked about the fact that statistically this was not only significant, this is almost impossible in terms of there being 17 people who had suffered from something like gigantism. In fact, Little goes on to note that, well, there are probably fewer than 100 cases of gigantism actually recorded in American history, and yet the the debunkers, you know, who again I think, Richard, are people who go into this rather than being naturally skeptical like I am. They're people who go into it with the kind of preconceived notion that well this can't be, and therefore I'm going to orchestrate my argument around disproving it with the preconception that it can't be. These individuals would make any argument against this kind of a thing, and they often cite gigantism apparently in absence of knowledge of the facts that this is not as <laughs> frequent an occurrence as we might assume that it is. And so looking at these cases where there are numerous large skeletons, they don't have to be anything particularly anomalous, but something between 7 and 8 feet tall and maybe you know 17 or so of them appearing in a single area, uh, maybe buried within a, a, you know, a similar period in conjunction to one another, uh, you know, even if that's just a period that you know, spans maybe a couple of hundred years, that's pretty statistically significant. And I think that the case certainly can be made that there were people of extremely large stature, whether that constitutes a race, and furthermore, as Richard Dewhurst and others have asserted, whether that is evidence of a conspiracy, since most of us don't have access to that information. I couldn't really uh, endorse that or say that we have enough evidence to support it, although we will look at evidence of actual skeletons, as you and I are talking tonight, uh, that are extremely large and that actually still exist in the Smithsonian's records, which I've actually uncovered and I mentioned in my essay in this new uh, this new anthology, new page books has put out. What is the significance uh, of these skeletons, giant skeletons, being excavated from these large earthen mounds? There are instances, you know, where some of these things are, are purportedly rather anomalous. There, there have been some cases, uh, you know, for instance, where there are, again, extremely large human remains, uh, purportedly clad in armor, sometimes buried alongside European kinds of uh, artifacts and things, which are sort of falling into the jurisdictions of what we might call out-of-place artifacts. The problem is that in a lot of instances, uh, it is probable that the newspaper reports of, you know, the Victorian era and on up into the 1800s and early, early 1900s and even maybe up until the middle part of the last century, uh, it is probable that a lot of the – and this doesn't just apply to the United States because large skeletons have purportedly been found in other parts of the world just as well. And so when I say we're talking about newspapers, you know, going back the last couple of hundred years, this includes England and other localities as well, Montpellier, France, as well as Castelnau. A couple of notable uh, skeletal finds uh, were actually unearthed there in France in the late 1800s. But when we look at some of these reports, we cannot rule out the likelihood, not just the possibility – that some of these newspaper reports were, in fact, hoaxes or tall tales uh, circulated by the dailies to essentially just uh, draw interest and increase readership. The problem is, is that, again, I think that the skeptical debunker will look at all of these reports and say, see, they're all probably hoaxes, and there's no way we can prove that they're true, when, in fact, um, there are a number of cases that the newspapers actually reported, including the Graham and Chittenden skulls, what was known as the DeHart jaw, all of these uh, discoveries actually still exist in the Smithsonian's 
off-site storage facility, and accession card catalogs maintained at the Smithsonian Institute today actually still catalog and account for those discoveries. So not only do they exist, not only does the Smithsonian account for them, but the newspaper articles that were reporting them are accurate. And so yet again, when the skeptical debunkers come about saying, oh, you can't believe any of these old newspaper articles, that's simply not true. And I frankly think that they haven't done enough homework in terms of trying to make comparative analyses or at least doing a little bit of historical research in terms of what stories are reported in the news from that era and which ones actually ended up being accounted for in the Smithsonian's own archives. Micah Hanks is with us, separating the wheat from the chaff as we discuss Big Buried Secrets, Giant Skeletons and the Smithsonian, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. We are back with Micah Hanks, writer, lecturer, broadcaster, uh, and we were talking about giant skeletons and whether or not evidence for such a a race of giants uh, has been expunged from the uh, official record by institutions like the Smithsonian. Uh, We have uh, newspaper reports uh, of um, excavations supposedly revealing skeletal remains of giant humanoids, and yet we do not see any on exhibit at places like the Smithsonian. Uh, talk to me about uh, the, the skeletons uh, that were discovered uh, in, uh, in western Nevada. I believe it's a Lovelock Cave. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a very famous story. You know, basically what, what this involves is that there is a, a native legend, I think, among the Paiute uh, natives in that area. And uh, what they have told about is a race of, of beings that were extremely large that were called uh, the Siteka. And uh, at Lovelock Cave, essentially, there were a number of instances where there were extremely large people that were, uh, well, I say, again, large people, and I should actually qualify that statement because it's often stated in this discussion when we're talking about extremely large skeletons that we are discussing a race of giants. I think quite the contrary now, this is one of the biggest and best art, uh, arguments, no pun intended, that uh, the, uh, the the big-time skeptics you know, bring against this discussion, where is, in fact, uh, I think that it's more plausible and obvious even that uh, what we're dealing with are reports of you know humans that were extremely large in stature. That, to me, is still of interest, and the fact that people dismiss out of hand that there's anything in, you know, of interest about extremely large skeletons of large humans is very curious to me. But uh, it goes back to around 1911, the story of Lovelock Cave. It actually began with guano miners who were actually uh, digging through the cave and extracting guano. Uh, and they began to find, buried in the bat guano on the base of the cave floor, uh, a number of mummified uh, human remains. Uh, but unfortunately, because they didn't want to have to uh, interrupt the mining operation, the reports of the bodies that were being discovered didn't come to light until much later. Uh, some of the stories are pretty strange about this. You know, for instance, there was supposedly a local fraternity that obtained one of the uh, bodies and used it in some sort of a secret, you know, kind of a uh, initiation or something like that, which almost gets into the realm of conspiracies and uh, secret societies. Again, whether I can confirm that that story is true, um, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but that was reported at the time. Uh, some of the uh, the skeletons in this case, again, were anywhere from six and a half feet tall. Uh, according to records, that's not particularly extremely large, but they did have a number of interesting features that were not particularly characteristic of the indigenous people in that area, such as red hair and things like this. Now, it should be noted 
that red hair or pigmentation loss that results in red hair on bog mummies have actually been discovered in other parts of the world. In just what I stated, the actual cases where people have fallen into a peat bog and have been preserved in a mummified state. Uh, so I don't know that we can make the direct case that these people, when they were alive, were red-headed. Uh, but the I story see. of the Sita Ka, according to the Paiute Indian legends, described tall, red-headed people who were also cannibals. And interestingly, anthropologists and, 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 and scientists who have actually done uh, ongoing studies at Lovelock Cave have found evidence of what may have been during a famine period what was likely uh, you know, bones being split open to extract marrow, i.e. cannibalism, that actually occurred there at Lovelock Cave. Now, the other important thing to keep in mind here is that the story among the Paiute is that these red-headed giants, as they call, were forced into this cave, and a fire was lit, and that they were all killed in that manner. So it is a very compelling legend, and what is also interesting is that, yet again, there are beings of large stature that were recovered that didn't seem to match in all cases uh, the indigenous people in that area, but it did seem to correspond to the legend that the Paiute have about the Sitek Ka. Now, again, whether or not that's evidence of some sort of race of giant people or you know, maybe early explorers who were of European origin or something along those lines, your guess, again, is as good as mine. But it's interesting that there is a parallel between the legend and actual discovery of strange and, in many instances, very, fairly large uh, skeletons that were recovered there at Lovelock Cave in Nevada. Now, the, but the Sitek Ka, uh, if they did have, in fact, red hair, that would suggest perhaps of European descent, or, or, or am I mistaken? You know, I mean, I, I would think so. Again, what my opinion on that really is, is uh, knowing that there are other instances where there have been bog mummies with that loss of pigmentation that can cause kind of a reddish, kind of a copper or a burnt copper color to the hair, uh, my guess would be that probably during the preservation of the remains within the guano that piled up over time in the base of the cave, uh, that probably is what led to the pigmentation loss, in my opinion. Uh, but, again, this is interesting because there is still the parallel between the story of large people who were forced into the cave and a fire was lit and that these individuals were cannibals. And there seem to be real-world um, components that have been unearthed utilizing science uh, in the years, you know, actually probably the centuries that followed. So it seems that something happened at Lovelock Cave and that, if anything, and this is only one of a few instances that I outlined in this essay, uh, with regard to Native American legends pertaining to people of extremely large stature that existed in the ancient Americas, this is yet again a case where there is an, a local uh, tale of origin that is appended to reports and even the discovery of large human remains. Now, I, we've heard reports, read reports, uh, in terms of the Lovelock Cave case, where these individuals were 10 feet tall in some instances, but you're saying, no, six and a half to seven feet tall, which is hardly... What would we what we would would, would call or ca- categorize as a giant? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a tall person, but you know, yet again, this isn't particularly anomalous. Now, I will go on to say though that among some of the things that were removed from the cave um, that were non-human remains, more importantly, artifacts and even articles of clothing, it was actually a sandal that was removed that was oh, it was huge. I mean, I think this thing would have been you know comparable to a size 15 shoe uh, in American male shoe sizes today, and so. Uh, you know, there have been some that have speculated that, again, there's evidence that some of the bodies that were recovered there at Lovelock may indeed have actually been larger. Uh, again, you know, I tried to err on the, uh, the, the, the side of the more conservative estimates, and we know that there were at least six and a half to seven foot tall skeletons that were found, but there is the possibility that some were larger than that. And 
What's curious, I understand that this was this uh, these artifacts were turned over to the University of California. So what happened to them? Why don't we see the remains from Lovelock Cave on exhibit somewhere? You know, I think some of them are actually still kept, and if I remember correctly, a private museum has some of them. And then again, I think that some of them, as you'd mentioned, I think it was the University of California uh, that uh, acquired certain uh, artifacts. Uh, those again have kind of vanished from public view and this is one of the things that has continued to kind of fuel speculation about whether there's a cover-up because it seems that if there were again evidence of people that were extremely large that inhabited the americas in ancient times uh, this would be the kind of thing that i mean would just be you know literally not just displayed but maybe brandished by museums i mean they would they would want to to show this off this would be incredibly telling and this would in in many ways rewrite history uh, not just for the Americas, but other parts of the world where these purported skeletal finds have been uncovered. And so why aren't these things actually put forth more often? So uh, it, it's natural that people, and, and again, you know, this uh, this idea of there being a cover-up by uh, institutions, namely the Smithsonian Institute, uh, which essentially is an independent federal agency, uh, this idea is often attributed to a friend of mine, David Hatcher Childress. Many of your listeners know David. Yes, know David well. In fact, David uh, was on the uh, Ancient Alien Cruise with me back in January, along with Hugh Newman, and we had a long talk about all this. Um, but, but even before David Childress had begun writing articles, one that appeared in Nexus magazine a couple of decades ago, I think, about this subject and the idea that the Smithsonian was, if not covering up, at very least keeping certain information from you know being readily available to the public. Ivan Sanderson, I think, going back to the 1960s, had said much the same thing. He had received a report of the very same sort of things that we're discussing here with Lovelock Cave, there was on the island of Shimya, I think, in the Aleutian Islands uh, during the Second World War, while a uh, runway for an airbase was being constructed, uh, large skeletons were on Earth. In fact, um, and this is interesting, Richard, I found kind of a counterpart to that story because Sanderson had received a letter from someone who said that he'd seen the skeletons. Some of them were over eight feet tall. Uh, some of them had been, the skulls had been trepanned, which means that there'd been a hole drilled in the top, and this is something that many ancient cultures practiced for different reasons. Uh, medical, spiritual, otherwise. But uh, Sanderson had been fascinated with this and was convinced that there had indeed been something that took place, but that when, again, this uh, this informant of his who had told him about the instance there on, on Shimya uh, was asked where the, the bodies ended up being taken, uh, it was said that the Smithsonian recovered them, and after Sanderson made personal inquiries to try and locate the skeletons, he and colleagues as well, none of them could seem to get an answer from the Smithsonian about the receipt of or the present whereabouts of those skeletons. However, um, a research uh, associate of mine and I did manage to actually find in the accession card catalog with the Smithsonian at least one instance where Dr. Herdlicka, whose name pops up a lot, especially in the early part of the last century in relation to these large skeletal remains and the finds and discoveries of them, uh, Dr. Herdlicka had actually appeared. And uh, on one of the accession cards, it was noted that he was the discoverer of a large um, skeletal, uh, if not just the skull, also parts of the uh, the skeleton of a large individual that appeared uh, somewhere on the Aleutian Islands in a cave where there were mummies said to be found. So interestingly, yet again, the Smithsonian does seem to have records of large human skeletons that were found in that general locality, and I think that kind of vindicates Sanderson, but it also shows that the allegations of this cover-up go back much further, decades, in fact, maybe half a century or so. So is there a conspiracy? I really personally, Richard, don't think that there is. I think it is strange that this information isn't more, um, uh, you know, touted and it, that the 
in, uh, institutions and agencies that have it don't, uh, you know, they aren't more forthcoming with it. That's maybe the greatest uh, mystery, but it seems that they do still have the information and that there's, you know, verifiable evidence of it. Well, I, I, I'm thinking about someone like um, Michael Cremo, who has documented uh, these anomalous artifacts located in strata uh, millions of years old, but these are modern uh, relics um, that almost look like, you know, uh, a sphere that looked like it was machined. Uh, or, uh, you know, a, a modern type of shoe found in in strata hundreds of thousands of years uh, before, you know, modern man was walking upon the earth. And uh, this, you know, we're familiar with his work, uh, Forbidden Archaeology. And again, we don't see these things uh, in in museums because, and, and perhaps there's an argument that can be made, they don't fit with the sort of the official orthodox view of man's origin. Uh, so is it possible that, let's say, for example, someone unearthed uh, giant uh, skeletons? We have cases in uh, Wisconsin, allegedly, where these uh, these 18 strange uh, skeletons were something on the order of 10, 10 feet tall. They reported double rows of teeth, six fingers, six toes. I don't know if that's true or not. But you can imagine that would present a huge problem uh, to... To, uh, to a museum. I mean, what do they do with that? It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit very easily. And initially, when I'd come across so many of the reports that, uh, you know, fellows like Jim Vieira, Micah Ewers, and a few other individuals, yes, in fact, there is another Micah out there who is involved in this kind of research other than yours truly, although it's a fairly uncommon name. But, um, you know, when, when individuals such as those aforementioned, Hugh Newman and, of course, Richard Dewhurst, who you've had on the program previously, um, have brought forward so many of these old articles, not just things that appear in old you know newspapers, but things that have been published, you know, for instance, in the Bureau of Ethnology reports by the Smithsonian themselves and other scientific journals over the years. There are mention, and I would even go so far as to say frequent mention, of uh, anomalous characteristics like double rows of teeth, six-fingered hands, you know, things like this, trepanning. Uh, and when I first came across those kinds of descriptions. Richard, I, I would kind of go, okay, that just, you know, kind of strange credulity, uh, when in fact, it's more interesting to me now that I've studied this quite uh, quite a bit, uh, as was brought to my attention by uh, Jim Vieira, uh, that uh, he was approached by a person after he'd been giving one of his lectures about the subject, and the guy had said, you know, I was actually born with double rows of teeth, and so I knew that this, you know, could occur, and, and Jim was pretty amazed by this, as I was when I first heard it from Jim. Looking into it, again, it is a genetic kind of a, I guess you might call it a, dis, a disorder or maybe even a kind of a growth deformation after a fact, um, where certain individuals actually do have two rows of teeth. You've got to think about it, though. As crazy as it sounds at the outset, all human beings you know, throughout the course of their life will have two sets of teeth. They have the baby teeth, which around five or six, you know, fall out and everything, and then the adult teeth grow in. Um, there are certain individuals whom grow baby teeth, and those teeth never fall out before the adult teeth grow in. And so this is actually something in terms of medical science that can be accounted for, and some people have this, and it is consistent with the reports of some of these extremely large, um, what we could presume to be maybe certain varieties of Native American bodies that have been uncovered that are extremely large. Yet again, also, uh, there have been instances where there have been you know, people who have a sixth finger. If I remember correctly, one of the famous blues guitarists, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, I believe was one of those who actually had that uh, characteristic 
Um, so there are individuals who have all those kinds of things that are described in some of the giant skeleton reports, and maybe they aren't as uncommon as they seem at first. All right, uh, Micah, stay where you are. We'll take a timeout, come back, and continue to talk about strange skulls, giant skeletons, and uh, whether or not the Smithsonian is engaged in a cover-up. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Micah Hanks is with us. He is a contributor to a new anthology entitled Lost Secrets of the Gods, the latest evidence and revelations on ancient astronauts, precursor cultures, and secret societies. Uh, interesting um, um, unfinished meditation uh, from Abraham Lincoln when he visited Niagara Falls in the autumn of 1848. Lincoln was campaigning at the time for Whig presidential candidate Zachary Taylor in Massachusetts. And on the way home to Illinois, he visited Niagara Falls, found the site so impressive he started writing about it, and here he, he writes, It calls up the indefinite past, when Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his Maker. Then, as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Micah, Pretty interesting uh, piece of writing there from Honest Abe. What do you make of that? He talks about the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America. What was he talking about? That's a good question. You know, as a matter of fact, I've got to be honest, I'm not familiar with that quote, and uh, I find it utterly fascinating. Uh, I can only assume that it probably takes into consideration uh, some of the reports of the day uh, that obviously had, uh, you know, gotten enough attention that even uh, the president of the United States in that instance, you know, would uh, would comment on that. And interestingly, this is a whole different discussion we could probably have. Maybe we'll wait until the next election, but uh, at least here in the States. But, uh, you know, there have been a number of instances where presidents of the United States have, you know, commented on or expressed interest in various anomalous things. Um, I believe that uh, Lincoln had also engaged in seances, um, especially after the uh, the death of his son, and so I'm not surprised that he would also go on to comment on the, you know, purported finds of uh, giant humans that existed in the ancient Americas. That's right. Mary Todd Lincoln was, I believe, a spiritualist and, and held many seances. I, I didn't know that uh, Abraham Lincoln participated. Uh, and, of course, yes, we had the uh, uh, former President Clinton on uh, Jimmy Kimmel talking about Area 51 and Roswell. There's a whole, there's a, there's a, a great book there for you, Micah. Oh yeah, well you know, and of course you know, uh, UFO researcher Grant Cameron has done a lot of yes. uh, looking into uh, presidents who have looked into the UFO thing. But it's not just UFOs. I mean, you could talk about Teddy Roosevelt and his claims of something that many interpret as being a Bigfoot encounter. Yeah, there are a lot of directions you could go with something like that. Uh, when you were researching this, did you find uh, any documentation at the Smithsonian? Uh, that corroborated some of these newspaper accounts of uh, skeletal remains, let's say, in excess of seven and a half feet tall. They you were know, getting into real giant territory. Yeah, that's a, you know, a few things I'd like to say about that. The majority um, actually uh, typically pertain either to seven, uh, to seven and a half or maybe eight foot tall skeletons 
or we're dealing with incomplete uh, recovered remains, for instance, you know, just a skull that was not found in conjunction with a large body. But, uh, you know, one of the notable instances that um, is kept in the accession card catalog at the Smithsonian and accounts for a large specimen that not only was mentioned in newspaper reports of the day, but also which is still described as existing on the off-site storage facility that the Smithsonian houses, um, one that is known as the Graham Skull. Uh, this, uh, I've, and I've actually managed to find some really nice photographs of that, uh, again, with the help of a research assistant of mine who, due to his uh, position in government, uh, prefers not to uh, to be entirely forthcoming with his involvement and who he is. That may sound very clandestine and even secretive or suspicious to some, it being the conspiracy show. But, I mean, there are many people, Richard, and I'm, I'm in, frequently in contact with him. In fact, every week, members of the science community, the academic community, you know, members of uh, you know different government agencies and things like that. And I'm not talking about like CIA and FBI and intelligence, but I'm talking about people who work in positions where if they expressed openly having an interest in these kind of subjects, it would be compromising to their employment. Sure, career suicide, absolutely. It has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, you know, shadowy figures lurking over them and so forth. It's just, uh, it's not something you discuss over the water cooler. It's not, and unfortunately, and I say that because, you know, there are people who I wish I could give more credit for their assistance with these things. But again, in this modern digital age, you can request things without ever having to travel to the Smithsonian, which is the route which I had taken along with the assistance of a research associate who is one of these clandestine but, you know, very honorable people I'm, I'm mentioning who prefer to go anonymously about their business and trying to find the truth. So the Graham Skull, and I think we've got to go to a break, but I'll just say this. It's a single skull that was found, but it was so large, I believe maybe to date still the largest human skull on record with about a 2,100 cubic centimeter brain capacity. Those are some of the kinds of things that you know still exist with the Smithsonian. But again, we can't determine the height because the entire body wasn't recovered. All right, more of my conversation with Micah Hanks when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. So with us, the biblical accounts of, of giants. Uh, the Bible is filled with stories of uh, of. Uh, giants that roamed the land, and you know, not just uh, uh, Goliath and his brothers. Uh, you know, we're told that there were entire villages that were inhabited uh, by giants. Do you think that we're talking about the same sort of thing uh, when it comes to the Bible? That, that we're talking about individuals that may have been seven, seven and a half feet tall, or are we actually talking about a, a, a separate race? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. With regard to the Bible accounts, uh, you know, I think that often there are, uh, you know, interesting blends of what are probably cultural memories and maybe some, you know, something along the lines of what today we could call pseudo-historical accounts that are blended with a fair helping of mythology just as well. And I think even our biblical scholars, you know, recognize that kind of a thing. Uh, and that doesn't detract, for instance, from, you know, if, if you're a person of religious persuasion, my father being a priest himself, uh, that doesn't detract from the message of the gospel, you know. But I think that we have to look carefully at, especially with the Old Testament, the way that mythology comes into play with these sorts of things, um, uh, you know, as well as you know, for instance, legends of like the Nephilim and things like that, which many actually use as the justification for there being not only a race of giants, but perhaps some sort of an actual extraterrestrial component to this. I think that that's kind of the essence of that legend. Whereas. Quite the contrary, I think that uh, probably the source of the legends of extremely large people, Richard, are in in essence actually they stem from you know stories of very large people and the actual existence of very large people. Um, you know there are actual in anthropological studies we look at the ancient lineage of our ancestors and, and varieties of humans who have come and gone in different parts of the world 
before us. And we look at something like Meganthropus, which, especially in parts of Africa, went through a period where seven feet tall was normal for for uh, this particular uh, species. Uh, Paranthropus and, and certain other hominids were also extremely large and went through periods where they were, you know, larger than average humans today. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, defining what is a giant, often when we talk about, again, seven or eight foot tall, you know, human remains, uh, an argument that the, the skeptical debunkers will typically say is, this needs to stop. We can't keep calling these things giants. There's one individual who's come after me, uh, you know, several times and even written entire entire articles with titles like Micah Hanks and the Giant Skeleton Conspiracy, although I'm not a person who is advocating there being a conspiracy to cover these things up. I'm just trying to find actual data that backs up the reports of anomalously large remains. Is that Jason Colavito? Uh, you know, I can actually say that it is, and, and I'll tell you this, too, not just to toss a disclaimer out there. Uh, I respect Jason's writing and his work. I enjoyed his writing a lot, um, especially before he began to write those articles and everything, and I'd offered a rebuttal to some statements he had made uh, about a year ago to Jim Vieira, and he came after me, and of course, you know, unfortunately, the only thing I don't like about the way that Jason writes is that he tends to take an extremely, not just a dismissive attitude, which I think is really okay if what is being written about needs to be dismissed, but he also takes kind of a nasty tone and, and, and has to be derisive and, and frankly just very unfriendly at times. I try not to be rude uh, when I am rebutting somebody's argument, and, and Jason does tend to do that, but I still think that as a researcher, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I do research or, or rather respect his writing a lot and also his perspectives, even though I don't agree with all of them. Now, that said, he would tell you, for instance, he and, and many others, that these giants, as we call them, and I put up air quotes, aren't really giants at all because there have been people in modern times who exist who are those sizes. But if indeed anything taller than about 8 foot 11 comes about, this I think is an exception we have to take into consideration, and I use that particular height because, again, Robert Wadlow, the tallest man in modern times that we've accounted for, um, was 8 foot 11 uh, in, in his lifetime at his tallest. When we find people who are supposedly 9 and 10 feet tall, as some of the skeletal remains purportedly recovered from certain burial mounds have been described as being, if there is truth to those reports, these are indeed extremely large humans, much larger than even anomalously large people suffering from things like acromegaly and gigantism that we can account for today. And I think that those things should warrant further inquiry, but unfortunately, yet again, there's an ideological attitude toward this, as I'm sure you've seen, Richard, where people seem to want to you know, sweep it under the rug and, and, and essentially uh, just be rude to people who even try and make the case that maybe there's something worth looking at. That's really all I'm trying to say. Well, the, the, this ideological uh, uh, battle that you speak of, I, that is, is that not at the root of the conspiracy theory that the, the, the Smithsonian and others, uh, other institutions, are trying to suppress this information because it comes down to ideology? Yeah, I think that you're you're absolutely right, actually, um, and, and that's a great observation there, my friend. Uh, you know, by the same token, another reason, and it's not to say that I would say, for instance, that you know, in certain instances there is evidence of a cover-up, but I dismiss that so that I'm, you know, apparently coming across as seeming more credible to skeptics. I'm not saying that by any means, but I will say that I'm careful to look at data and interpret it as being evidence of some sort of a grand dark conspiracy. Because if there is not clear evidence for that, and in many instances I look at uh, stories and I find it to be quite the contrary, if we cannot find hard evidence of an absolute cover-up of certain data, then I don't think that we can you know, make the claim we should, because I think that, that does weaken our argument. Uh, in essence, it kind of accounts for, well, we can't show you this or that because somebody's keeping it from us, and therefore, that of course we can't provide you with proof. 
you know, I think we should dig around and, and do as I have done and, and many of my colleagues have done and try and actually find that, that evidence, whether it be in newspaper clippings, whether that be in, you know, Smithsonian journals, or more importantly, uh, if we can find, you know, again, comparisons between a variety of sources that all acknowledge the same sort of thing, is as I've, you know, said that there are still instances, Graham Chittenden schools, DeHart Jaw, some of these, uh, you know, relic finds that have turned up in the accession card catalog in which we know the Smithsonian has a, and, and has accounted for. So now whether they could be called a race of giants, whether you choose to call a person who's between 8 and 10 feet tall a giant at all, you know, I think that unfortunately there's a bit of a semantic argument right there, which again comes back to that ideology. But to me those are pretty large, and I think that at very least they are probably the source for the legends of giants that we hear about in Native American traditions. If the Smithsonian has documentation uh, of these finds, where are the where are the bones? Are they are they? Is it possible that they're they're sitting in a warehouse somewhere? Yeah, it certainly is, and I think that when you, <laughs> when we talk about that, people kind of envision like Indiana Jones, you know, this this warehouse where all the great relics of humankind and history are kept, you know, religious artifacts, things like this. Yeah. In, in truth, we know, though, based on the, the records kept in the accession card catalog at the Smithsonian, that the Graham School and others are kept in the off-site uh, storage facility that the Smithsonian utilizes for storage of certain things. What's interesting to me is, yet again, I mean, something that is so um, potentially interesting, I don't see why it's not put on display or, or, or more uh, publicly made available, I guess, uh, than they are, uh, that they are stashed away in a, in a, in a warehouse. Uh, again, I don't think that that's evidence of a conspiracy, but it is a little odd that these extremely large human remains, and again, keeping in mind, that I believe that the Graham skull at 2,100 cubic centimeters uh, cranial capacity, I think is still among, if not the largest on record ever found in the Americas. Um, the fact that something like that, there are photos that exist of it, but that it's not something that is readily enough available that people generally know about it, that's a little strange to me, and I'll at least acknowledge that. <laughs> uh, one of the other uh, difficulties in excavating these uh, these skeletons, at least according to uh, Richard Dewhurst, has to do with uh, certain laws uh, in the United States regulating, uh, I guess, archaeological digs in ancient uh, Indian burial uh, sites, uh, in other words, they can't they can't excavate these bones. They have to be left in situ. Uh, did you uh, come across any any reports about that? Yeah, I certainly have, and uh, you know this is something that even outside the realm of the study of, of you know large skeletons uh, has been a bit of an issue because there have been um, what are apparently um, anomalous. Uh, human remains that have been discovered in parts of the Americas. One, which um, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, that was attributed to this, but it was basically a human who was found to be uh, rather peculiarly of Polynesianist uh, descent, but was somehow found in a in a very uh, unlikely place and dating back to a period in time that was very unlikely for a person of Polynesian descent to have been discovered. Um, the The issue is that when again something like this is found. And discovered, uh, you know, scientists want to look at this. Anthropologists and archaeologists want to look at this, and they want to say, "Oh my gosh, we've got something that may be a key to unlocking certain aspects of ancient human history." But according to governmental jurisdictions, again, we have to take into consideration uh, indigenous people, their values, their traditions, their beliefs, and um, there's certain legislation that does, uh, unfortunately, complicate the act of removal of human remains, especially when they are found 
on Native American land. And so, yes, that certainly is. Whether you want to look at that as being uh, political or you know cultural, uh, you, there there are aspects, I guess, of both. But it certainly has made it difficult in some instances. And I think that we have to have both. I think we have to have a common sense approach scientifically that can account for looking at what are obviously, in instances like that. Um, something of great value to history and science, but by the same token, we also have to take utmost care to value uh, and and also share the value of cultural traditions and beliefs among different uh, people and different groups. What are you working on uh, now, the uh, Micah? Oh man, I tell you, this is a fascinating case. I've been digging into. I've always been so fascinated by reports of, uh, and funny enough, there's a, a giant component to this as well, but reports of sea serpents. And, um, you know, yet again, rather than just, you know, regurgitating all the stories that, you know, have been told for the last couple of centuries about sea serpents, um, I have been spending a lot of time recently digging into scientific journals and reports that uh, account for not actual specimens of sea serpents, but interestingly, uh, specimens that have been recovered and confirmed as being uh, the larvae of eels uh, that are extremely large. And the, uh, the, I guess the inferred opinion here is, in some of these cases, not all of these larvae are indeed eel, but in some where they are, we have to suppose that the parent would be extremely large, and so it's possibly an interesting window to uh, understanding some of the sea serpent reports of yesteryear. That's something I'm digging into right now, and hopefully we'll have a new book out about that before too long. I, I didn't realize that uh, uh, they called tiny eels larvae. Well, well, here's the thing about this. Leptocephalus is the term for, a leo, for an eel larva. And generally, if we're talking about uh, you know something like a, a moray or a conger eel, which don't get much longer than between maybe you know nine and at very most maybe 15, 16 feet, I think the largest ones on record, um, the leptocephalus, the larva uh, of an eel like that, is going to probably just be a few centimeters long, and they're going to be almost perfectly clear, perfectly translucent. There have been in certain instances, even as recently as the last few years, I think off the New Zealand coast and in other uh, locations, uh, there have been leptocephalus, which are clearly eel larvae, but these larvae appear to be, you know, sometimes a couple of feet long. Uh, it was often said that Anton Brun, a naturalist in the 1930s off the west coast of Africa, found a six-foot-long eel larva, but I do believe that this actually was not an eel larva, but was actually of the nocanthidae uh, um, Species and was actually essentially the larva of a spiny snub-nosed eel, which is a deep-water fish that's a little more like a fish than an eel, still similar families, but probably not the leptocephalus larva like many had said that it was. And so there have been some who have tried to debunk the eel larva theory of sea serpents, but in truth, digging into the scientific literature, uh, Richard, I have managed to find a number of reports where undeniably eel larva, leptocephalus, have been discovered that are anomalously large. And again, the question is, is this evidence of a species of eel that's much larger than anything we know to exist in our oceans? Well, I know, I know you wrote recently uh, one of your posts about um, uh, Lionel Walford and uh, having seen a 50-foot-long undulating serpent-like creature resembled a transparent sea monster. It looked so much like jelly, he could see no bones, no eyes, nose, or mouth. Was that an eel? Uh, good question. I will tell you this, though. He said that it was glass-like and that it appeared to be translucent. It certainly met the criteria for being some sort of a leptocephalus, um, but something that large, oh gosh, it stretches the brain much further than I think I'm comfortable to try and you know, speculate about right now. Something that large, I mean, we're really talking about a sea monster. All right. Well, can't wait for that book to come out. We'll have you back on. Micah Hanks, thanks for this. Richard, always a pleasure. RichardSerrett.com is the website. 
Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. 